0: Open your Bibles to Psalm 72, please. And as you're turning there, I wonder if you remember back last fall when we looked at our series on the book of Judges. Do you remember that book? A question I want you to think about. Uh, Sorry, I think my daughter is locked out of the, the... Is she trying to get in there? There we go. Okay, you can't preach when your daughter's locked out. <laughs> Come on in, Tara. Okay, now I can focus more. Uh, Book of Judges. We looked at that last fall. Remember that time. Now, I want you to think about this. If there was a time in Israel's history that you were going to go back to and live in, would you want to live in the time of Judges from ...from what you know of that book. I would guess you would say probably not. And for good reason. It was a time of horrible abuse, of instability. Remember, if you do in the book, there's that refrain that's repeated several times. When there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And remember, too, that right in their own eyes always meant harmful to others, especially the weaker members of society. The book of Judges is basically a catalog on the sufferings of women. There's gang rape and mutilation. It's about a man killing his daughter. All kinds of horrible things happen to the weak members of society when there's no king on the throne. In fact, we could say that when there is no justice on the top, those who are on the bottom suffer the most. And sadly, this is not ancient history. And think of the reports coming out of Iraq and Syria. There's, there's no justice for the people. And those who suffer the most are the weakest, the young girls even. I know that I'm looking out in a crowd of people who have yourselves experienced suffering and injustice. So this is personal to you. Now, Israel, thankfully, did not remain in darkness. The time of the judges passed. And a good king emerged, King David. He took the nation from the dark ages and in many ways into the light. He was by no means a perfect king, but he did practice justice. He was a man after God's own heart. He put himself under God's law. And the nation, by and large, began to flourish. If you were to pick a time in Israel's history to live, living under the rule of King David would not be a bad place to go. And then David gets to the end of his life, and it's time for him to, to pass away, and his kingdom will be passed on to his son Solomon. David does not want the nation that he worked so hard to build to slide back into the dark ages. Also, like any parent, David wants his son to not repeat his own mistakes, but actually excel even further. And to that end, the passage we are going to look at this morning, Psalm 72, is a prayer that David prays for his son Solomon's rule. There's much we can learn from this. We learn about proper authority, what makes a good government, who should govern. It helps us lead well. But most importantly, we learn from this psalm what God is doing in the world and how to align ourselves with his purposes and plans. So let's look together at Psalm 72. Let me read it. It begins of Solomon. See, it's for Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. Make or may he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people. And the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the needy and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures, as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days, may the righteous flourish and peace abound till moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the end of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. For he delivers the needy when he calls, the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually. And blessings invoked for him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of mountains, may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities. May the grass of the field. or May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Sorry. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. And nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Let's pray and ask God for help. Lord, we pray that you would give us illumination into your word. Help us see wonderful things. Help us be challenged and comforted. Convicted and encouraged, that we may know more about Jesus and follow Him. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. So, as we see here, this prayer represents the end of the prayers recorded in the Book of Psalms, and likely this is one or the the end of the prayers of David, rather. And likely this is one of the last uh, psalms that David himself actually penned. Think of David here as an old man, perhaps on his deathbed. He's looking forward to what will come after him. And he's praying that his son would rule well and the nation would flourish. Notice here the flavor of this prayer. There's a sense of optimism and certainty. Amen and amen. David knows that these things that he's praying for will, in fact, come true. His son will rule well. The nation will prosper. There seems like there's no doubt about that. Now, if you know anything about the history of Solomon, that might raise some serious questions. Didn't Solomon rule in such a way that caused the nation to split in two? Yes, he did. Didn't Solomon lead the country into idolatry away from God? Yes, he did that too. Didn't he raise taxes in a way such that he crushed the people? Yup. So how can David be so confident here? Steve and I were talking this week about how this psalm is a welcome relief from some of the minor key psalms that we've looked at. I mean, some of them have had some real real down moments, right? Remember the psalm? Why are you in despair, O my soul? Remember that one? And there's the one we looked at also where it begins, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And last week, against you and you only have I sinned? Just wait till next week. Israel is going to preach on a psalm that ends with the phrase, darkness is my only friend. This psalm isn't like that. This psalm is happy, triumphant, all the way through. And yet, unavoidable is the stark difference between what is prayed for and what we know actually happened with Solomon. I want us to look at this psalm in the context of the whole history of Israel and the context of our lives. And I think if we bring that question to bear on the Bible, you know, that that difference that we see, I think we'll discover something wonderful. But first, we need to look at some of the details in this psalm. The psalm naturally divides into six different sections. And as briefly as possible, let me just walk you through them. Verses 1 to 4 are about the king judging in righteousness. First, we must recognize that the source of righteousness is God. The source of righteousness and justice is God. Look there at verse 1. Give the king, what's it say? Your justice. Oh God, your righteousness to the royal son. So, God is the one who is, in a sense, owning justice and righteousness. It's his. It belongs to him. But in his kindness, he gives it to others. And of course... He owns justice and righteousness because, one, he is the ultimate judge, right? And two, his righteous character is the standard by which he judges. He's the ultimate judge, and the standard by which he judges is his own character. So God judges according to whether or not something fits with his character, And this is what the Bible means when it talks about God establishing justice. God establishes justice by declaring things to be either good or bad, whether or not, based on whether or not they cohere with his character, with who he is. Now, you might say, well, we can't judge like that. You're right, you're not God. But God is the creator, God is the one who has ultimate righteousness, and he is the ultimate judge. And so it is good and fitting for him to judge like that. And friends, we don't understand God rightly unless we recognize that God judging based on his character is at the very core of who God is. I'm afraid that sometimes when we talk about the, the Bible's view of God, we make it sound as if God is really just this loving and accepting guy. And, and only when, you know, certain times when we've pushed him really far does he switch into the mode of a judge and friends that's not true it makes it sound as if God is schizophrenic and he's not God is always the judge and we will not understand his love unless we recognize that and part of the way that God judges is by delegating authority to earthly kings and governors God gives them authority. We see that in verse 2. After David prays for God to give his son justice and righteousness, he prays, may he, it's a son, judge your people. That word judge is repeated again in verse 4, and it's interestingly translated as defend. That's because when a judge brings out into public view the declaration of something, when a judge declares something good or bad, and he does it rightly, that protects the weak. You see, society, as I'm sure you're aware, naturally tends in the direction of might makes right, and the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules, right? That's the way society seems to just go. The job of a righteous king or ruler is to say, no, 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 right makes right, and the righteous ruler says, I don't care how much money you have, you don't get to make the rules, and you're not above them. That's what a righteous ruler does. And when a righteous ruler judges in that way, the weaker members of society are not overrun by the strong. They benefit. Did you notice how in this passage, over and over again, the poor are singled out as uniquely benefiting from righteous rule? There are at least ten references into this, in this passage of the, the poor in, in this psalm. We see a couple of those in the very first verses. Uh, May he judge your people with righteousness, your poor with justice. Again, special reference to the poor. May he defend the cause of the poor and give deliverance to the children of the needy. You see, friends, the true test of a leader is how much attention they give to the people who will never help them win win an election, will never make them richer or more popular, but the leader gives them attention because it's the right thing to do. And if you have a leader who is committed to impartial justice, well, well, then the society will indeed flourish. And we see that flourishing explained in verses 5 through 8. Look at verse 5. May they fear you while the sun endures. I think this is talking about the king, although... Could be debated that people will fear and respect the king. You might wonder, how does that have to do with human flourishing? In fact, it could seem at odds with human flourishing in a sense. There are some people who actually insist that this psalm could not possibly be one coherent psalm, it must rather be two different. Streams of poetry put together because there's no way that the person who receives so much honor from others could be that very same person who's going to bless others. And maybe you've thought that way as well. That would be very, a very American way to think, right? If you read the Declaration of Independence, oh, we don't like kings over here. But that's because we don't have a concept for how a loving authority for how it could be good to be under a loving authority. How a loving authority could could benefit us. We hear authority, and then we think abuse so often. Is there abuse of authority? Well, yes, there is. But the solution is not get rid of authority. That's actually not going to work. You see, as human beings made in God's image, made to worship him, We are going to align ourselves under somebody. We're going to serve somebody. The question is, is that authority which you align yourself under, is it loving? And two, is it strong enough to save you? And in the case of this king, he is both. And that's why we see in verse 6, the king will rain down. The king will be like rain that falls down on the ground showers that come on the earth. That's a metaphor there for saying the king will make the ground prosper, the land prosper, the people prosper. That's what it speaks more explicitly about in verse 7, when it says that the righteous will flourish and peace will abound. Prosperity will abound. Every night this week at the dinner table, I've been reading this psalm to my family and my Kids were asking me, what does this mean about the righteous flourishing? How does this work? And I I gave them this illustration. I said, let's say there are two places in the world. Place A, there are no rules, and people can steal things from you, and the government won't do anything about it. In place B, they have rules, and if somebody steals something from you, the government's going to try to get them to pay you back. What place would you more likely want to uh, start a company that's going to sell good things, that's going to benefit people. Well, it's, it's going to be place B, right? It's going to be the place where there's justice. That's going to give you a sense of security so that you can buy and sell and trade and, and have a family and establish yourselves. All things that help society flourish. The word here, peace, shalom, appears several times in this passage. It basically means everything is how it's supposed to be. Things are in a place of rest. And this psalm makes a clear connection between justice and peace. They say there's no peace without justice. A good king establishes justice so there will be peace. And when there is peace, the people can flourish. Before we move on to the next section, let's just hit the pause button here a second and make some personal application. I wonder... Do you thank God for whatever level of justice you do experience? I know it's easy for us to focus on the injustices we've experienced, from the person who cut you off on your way over here to more serious things. But given the sinful world we live in, injustice is what we would expect. Justice is actually more the exception. And whenever there is justice, it comes from God. It is God's justice that is being exercised. Well, friends, do you thank God for that justice? Do you recognize that it comes from Him? Do you pray for your rulers that they would be just? Well, friends, this is something that the deacons and pastors have, have realized that we need to do better at. We need to pray more consistently for our leaders. The Bible tells us to. 1 Timoth- Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge that all supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And notice what it says. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The Bible commands us to pray for our leaders. Notice why. Because of the connection between a good leader and peace. And then Paul goes on to make a connection between peace and it being good for the gospel. Do you pray for justice? Not simply for yourselves, but for others, especially for the weaker members of society. Do you pray for justice for those who are marginalized, whether because of race or class or economic situation? Do you pray for the weakest members of society, those not yet born? Do you pray that they would have justice and stop being killed? What about if you are in a position of authority? Maybe at work or or in your family or at church? Are you fair and just? Or are you arbitrary, showing favoritism? Do you give extra attention to those who have a greater ability to help you out? I scratch your back, you scratch mine kind of thing. Fathers here, unto what end are you leading your family? Is it to the end? That it would be more comfortable and convenient for you? That you might avoid criticism and have everything the way you like it? Or do you lead your family in such a way that it will benefit them? In other words, does your leadership allow your family to flourish? Is your leadership like rain coming down on the fresh grass? Or is your leadership like a scorching sun in a burning desert, sucking out whatever life that was there in the first place? If you are a leader, be one of those who reflects these attributes. And if you are a follower, which is everyone here, in some way or another, pray that those in authority over you would exercise their authority well. That will be good for you. Now, what happens when you have a king that allows people to flourish? Let's go back to the psalm here. Well, verses 9 through 11 tells us, that when, when you have a good king, when the people are flourishing, the result is all the nations want in. They want to come. They want to get it. Good leadership is so rare that when it is present, people come in droves. They want the peace and prosperity that comes from being under good leadership. Look at verse 9. The desert tribes bow down before him. In verse 10. Kings from all the earth bring him tribute. What that means there is that kings from all the earth are entering into an alliance with this king where they voluntarily make themselves subservient to him. They're saying, we are better off, and our nation is better off, if we we become part of this nation here. So this leader, David's son, acquires international influence. He benefits the entire world. And then if we look at verses 12 to 14, we see that David here re-explains why that is. We've already seen why in some sense, but David here is interested in not only telling us why, but celebrating for us why the people come to this king. Look at verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, and the poor him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Again, what do you see there? You see special reference to the poor, right? But this time, you see the clear connection between the leader's international influence and and his care for the poor. Stop and think about what was said right there. The mark of a great king is not... He rules with an iron fist. Or even the more American style of diplomacy, walk softly and carry a big stick. The mark of a good king is when there is justice for the weakest members of society. Justice for the ones who can't get justice anywhere else. Help for the absolute helpless. Verse, 11, verse 12, He delivers the one who has no helper. Verse, verse 14 explains why. His, their lives are precious in his sight. In other words, he cares deeply about them. And when I read this, I immediately thought of a counterexample that I read somewhere. I remember reading this comic book version of World War II, and, and Hitler invades Ru- uh, Russia and says to Stalin, you're going to lose now. And then Stalin replies, again, comic book version didn't really happen in this way, but nevertheless, Stalin replies, you've underestimated how many people live here and how little I care about their lives. But the king here is marked by the exact opposite. The lives of every single person here matter. Friends, rulers are not to be considered great because of the vastness of their authority or how much influence they wield or how many followers they have on Twitter. A leader is to be considered great for how much they care about every single person under their charge and how hard they will work for the betterment of others even when those others contribute nothing to them. And friends, if you are under a leader like this, how will you respond? Well, notice verses 15 through 17. They're a celebration of being under this leader. Verse 15, Long may he live. May gold be given to him. May prayers be made for him continually. May his name endure. May he be blessed. Again, this might seem rather un-American. Rarely do we pray for leaders to grow in power, right? We like our checks and balances, and for good reason. But what if there was a leader who used his power always and only to make people prosper? Then we would want him to prosper. And that's what it means in verse 17 when it says, May people be blessed in him. Think for a moment about what it means to be blessed in somebody, not just by somebody, in somebody. To be blessed in them means that you are blessed in a relationship with them because you've in some ways come under their authority, into their sphere. You're part of them. And therefore the blessings that they receive spill off to you. And if that's the case, you want them to be blessed more because that means you being blessed more. And that's why the people pray down blessings on this king, because they are so identified with the king that they benefit. We've looked at enough of this psalm to kind of pull back and ask the question okay, but how did this actually work out for David's son? Did he rule with justice? with a particular concern for the poor? Did he bring about peace? Did his kingdom flourish? And the answer in the beginning of his reign is yes, he did. The kings of the world actually did come to him. The queen of Sheba came and visited him to learn from him. Many, many nations wanted to be part of his kingdom in some way or another. But when he got older, things began to change. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us the sad news. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. When he became great, he did not use his greatness to bless the people. He used his greatness to crush the people. And in the end, God took away the kingdom from him. And the sad reality is that there has never been a king in the history of the world that has fully lived up to this reality. This psalm oozes of optimism. But when we set it in its context, it looks more like a cruel trick. Yeah, it would be nice if there was such a king, but such a king has never existed. Yet. Or ruling the world in such a way that we can see him doing so yet. The Holy Spirit did inspire David to write this prayer, so we can't dismiss it as wishful thinking. But God never intended it for it to be fulfilled by Solomon. David has an even greater son named Jesus. He comes into the world to establish justice, and he came with a particular focus on the poor, the helpless, but he came in a very different way than people expected him to. He did not come merely as a political leader. He came first as a savior. You see, the reality is that all people, rich or poor, have broken God's laws. Perfect justice entails the complete condemnation of all people. And if you want proof for that, just consider who is really responsible for the fact that that there is not this kind of human flourishing that's described in this psalm? Why hasn't there been a king that can rule with perfect justice and bring about perfect peace? It doesn't work simply to blame the leaders, as we so often try to do, because where do the leaders of this world come from? Well, they come from the people, right? And if we look into our own hearts, don't we see, at least in seed form, the same problems that that the leaders struggle with, that brings about injustice. And so as we go throughout our lives, don't we too often show more favor to the people who we think can benefit us and show less favor to those who won't benefit us? Aren't we more likely to snub people when we think we can get away with it? Don't we sometimes pretend we're above the law, the rules, that, and we can get away with things? We like it, don't we, when things work out in our favor, even if it might not have been completely by the book. And then we have ways of rationalizing it away. Friends, that's injustice in our hearts. And it's no stretch to say that genocide is simply that same tendency that we see in our own lives carried out to a much greater degree and on a much larger scale. The truth is, if we were put in a position of power, we wouldn't do it any better than those who are there now, those who we love to criticize. So what's the cause of, un, of injustice in the world? I am. If there was a world of perfect peace and a perfect justice, we'd be locked out because if we were let in, we'd corrupt it. This psalm talks about the king crushing the oppressor. At the end of the day, we are all oppressors. And so, perfect justice will not actually save us. Perfect justice will condemn us. That's why, in order for Jesus to save us, He first takes that justice upon Himself. He is the truly righteous One. He commits no sin. And He bears the weight of all sin upon Himself. God condemns Him. God judges Him. God crushes Him so that he can justly forgive, cleanse, and welcome us. And so we can say with great confidence that there has never been a more loving king in all the earth. We are truly precious in his sight, so precious that he would take on human flesh and bear in his body the punishment that we deserve. And in so doing, he establishes peace. Paul says that Jesus establishes peace through the blood of the cross. Jesus takes the punishment so that we can have peace. And then Jesus is exalted to the place of highest honor. He is given a name above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And then how does Jesus use this honor? He uses it to bless his people. The Bible says that we are blessed in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Our blessings come through our union with Christ because we are under his sphere, under his authority. And just as the nations realized that there was blessing by aligning themselves with King Solomon for a time, so also we must see that to an infinitely greater degree, there are blessings by aligning ourselves with Christ, by coming into him by faith, by trusting in him, and thereby reaping the benefits that he deserves. Friends, David's prayer may not have been fulfilled by his son, who was actually, who is son Solomon, who was actually at the end of his life a miserable failure of a king. But it was fulfilled perfectly by by David's greater son, who is our king even now. And you know, I think that David had some inclination that the blessings he's describing here are not fully fulfilled by Solomon. First of all, David describes his son's reign as unending. And that's obviously impossible for any earthly king. Because no matter how great they are, they will die. But notice here how David ends. Psalm, uh, verses 18 through 19. Psalm 72. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. That's a very interesting part. After spending 17 verses extolling the greatness of the king, his son, David then turns to God, who he says alone does wonderful things. What about all the wonderful things that the king does? I think David here knows that the only one who can do these wonderful things is God. God is the Savior. No human king is capable of bringing such a salvation that people really need. So God works it out in a way that David could never have conceived of. Salvation does indeed come from God. But God takes on human flesh and comes in the lineage of David, David's greater son. The reason why David can pray with so much certainty here, that this will come to pass, is that God has not left the peace of this world, up to the whims of human leaders. No, it is something that God has decreed he will do himself. The whole world will be filled with his glory, the glory of his righteous judgments. God is king. God will judge. He will establish his kingdom by ruling righteously so that the glory of his justice will be seen throughout the whole world. That will happen. And friends, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, consider, why wouldn't you want to come under this king's authority? Let me just quickly summarize what we've seen. So if you drifted off to sleep, come back here for this second. Here, You'll, you'll get the whole sermon in a minute. We live in a world of horrible injustice. This injustice prevents peace, and that blocks human flourishing. We can't blame the situation on someone else because we're all guilty. And so the perfect king comes takes off his crown, and receives the punishment for us lawbreakers. He is crushed. And then he is exalted to the place of highest authority. He is truly the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he invites us to come into him as friends. Well, friends, why not entrust yourself to this king? Why not submit to him? As we said before, we're all going to submit to somebody or something. I can tell you this week that I was amazed at all the things my heart wanted to run to and submit to. I can so easily believe the lie that aligning myself with this person or this thing will bring me happiness and peace. And I'm sure you can do the same thing as well. As the song says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And yet all the while, Christ is there saying... Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, the option is, we submit to Jesus our King and come into His kingdom of light or we remain in the kingdom of darkness ruled by Satan. And friends, in view of the superiority of Christ, why wouldn't you choose the the kingdom of light? Why would you choose the kingdom of Satan? Why continue putting yourself under the authority of a little king who wants to destroy you and who will be destroyed and you with him. Why not put yourself under the true king of light who wants to bless you and and will be blessed and you in him. So friends, as I did this week, consider who and what are you giving your heart to? To whom are you really pledging your ultimate allegiance? May it be Christ. And yes, to align yourself with Jesus puts you at odds with the world. It makes you a target for Satan. And this could be, I admit, quite confusing. Because how is it that the true king is not visibly exercising his authority now? That could seem like a massive contradiction. But actually, he is exercising his authority right now. You see, he is head of the church. And right now, today... Billions of people throughout the entire world will be gathering in meetings like this to bow their knee before King Jesus. Some do it in countries where it's considered illegal. Many do it against their parents' approval. Some do it knowing that they may be fired from their jobs and rejected from their communities. But they do it because Jesus is King. And now he has issued a decree that that now would be time of repentance. He could come down at any moment, exercising his perfect judgment, but in his grace, he delays that judgment, giving opportunity that many would come to him for repentance. So friends, come to this king. Trust him. Honor him. Obey him. Pledge your life to him. Only then can you know true peace. Amen and Amen.